You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by the hardcore wine dudes at First Bottle Wines. First Bottle is the sister site to the wildly popular one wine per day website, Last Bottle Wines. First Bottle is based in Napa, California, and the team is well connected to hundreds of wineries, brokers, distributors, and importers all over the world, and they have spent decades building trust with them. Offering quality wines at unbeatable prices is their top priority. You'll see lots of big names on First Bottle. They've got older vintages, collectibles, and approachable daily drinkers from every major wine region. They taste over 50,000 wines a year and know how to pick a winner. So visit firstbottlewines.com and use promo code GOLDENWEST at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. That's promo code GOLDENWEST at firstbottlewines.com. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, Golden West. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Faith Armstrong from Onward Wines. Enjoy my conversation with Faith. Faith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's great having you here. So we're kind of right in the middle of harvest or kind of, I guess, right at the outset. <laughs> so thanks so much for being able to join. Um, I know you have such a busy schedule going on, so it's great having you here. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for thanks for taking the time. And yeah, Harvest is, is starting. We have things fermenting and more stuff coming in tomorrow. But at this moment in time, there's no grapes on the crush pad. So this works perfect. Great. We're going to be able to get into all of the different wines that you're working on now and some of the releases coming up and all the good stuff. But I think first... Let's just go back to kind of the beginning of how you got going as a winemaker and, and kind of your journey uh, leading into wine. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, that's a long, a long one. Um, I am, I'm born and raised um, in British Columbia, Canada. And so I grew up um, actually on a little tiny island in northern British Columbia, um, really entirely off the grid. Um, there were not any vineyards. 
around there or even restaurants where one might, you know, go out and see people dining with uh, wine or such um, because it was a really remote area. So initially in my um, beginning younger years, wine wasn't really on my radar. Um, but uh, through, um, ironically, through a fishing connection, my sister um, met this, uh, uh, this fellow from California who owned a winery and uh, she took him fishing uh, fish, as a fishing guide. And that led to us coming down here, traveling, visiting the wine region, so on, and eventually led to me moving down to California. Um, my first uh, time living here was forever ago. Um, but <laughs> I was living and working up in the Sierra foothills and that was my first introduction to, uh, to wine really uh, in any kind of, um, as a career, as a business, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, from there I, I went back to Canada for, for a bunch of years and then, um, couldn't get it out, couldn't shake it. I guess you, you know, they, they call it having the wine bug when you've, when you've been bitten, it just um, it keeps nagging at you. And so it led me back to California again. Um, I moved back here. Now it's been, I guess, 20 years. I moved back in 2000. Um, my first uh, harvest internship was, um, was in 2000. So I moved back um, initially thinking I was going to go, um, my, my, I guess, jobs and career and, and such at that point was all in front of house. So more, uh, sales, marketing, um, those types of things. And I came down to do a job in that realm, in the wine industry, working and living in San Francisco, um, and doing events and ended up doing some PR work and such that led me to, learning more about one of our clients that, that we represented, um, through this, I worked for this, um, wonderful woman named Kimberly Charles, and she has a PR firm called Charles Communications. And we were representing William Selliam as a client. So we went up to do a day in the cellar, you know, to learn a little bit more about what they were doing so we could properly represent them. And, um, I, I can never thank them enough because they, uh, they threw us in a fermenter to shovel a fermenter and it was, it blew my mind. There was, you know, three or four of us and everyone else was like, Oh, this is dirty and awful. And I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever done. And so that spout me down this road of how do I, how do I do this side of winemaking? And, um, I started calling, cold calling wineries up and be like, hey, I want to be a winemaker. What do I do? Can I come work for you? And they were all like, yeah, you and everybody else. And this one wonderful person actually took the time on the phone and said, have you considered a degree in winemaking? And I was like, what? A degree in winemaking? You can get one of those? Like, I, I didn't even know about the program at Davis or anything. I was just all um, all excited without a lot of clarity, you know, like clarity about how to get into this industry, having not grown up in a winemaking family or even around the wine industry at all. So that led me to um, trying to figure out how to get into Davis, which is a whole nother back to school and having to take all my science classes and all of this. Um, and and I, I moved up to, um, to Healdsburg and started working in the cellar and went back to school at the same time and went to Santa Rosa Junior College 
and um, worked. Uh, I was originally hired as an intern at, at Simi Winery. And then they kept me on through the winter because I, unlike most of their interns that were from New Zealand or, or France or somewhere else, I was local. So I, I got to stay on and do all the cellar work that happens post-harvest while doing my, um, my beginning of my winemaking program. And then I transferred from there to UC Davis and ended up graduating from Davis in, um, in 2006 with a degree in, in winemaking and viticulture, um, a minor in brewing too, just all about making fermented alcohol beverages, you know? Um, and then, um, my, my, um, job, I was hired in, uh, in Napa. So that landed me moving to Napa. I was actually thinking I was moving back over to the, um, Healdsburg, um, area. I love it over there. And, I was putting out resumes, you know, all all around, and I got um, the most sort of realistic, solid job offer was um, was in Napa. So I moved here, and that was 2006, and whatever it is now, I still live here in Napa. So it became my um, my home, and um, I worked um, I, I worked in the valley for five years. Um, I think five or six years. And I started onward during that uh, time um, in 2009. And then I did both for a while um, until I finally had way too much on my plate um, trying to run my own business. Um, and I have a um, children as well that had come along the way and I was trying to balance all of that and working still full-time so I left my day job in 2011 and I've been doing um the the whole self-employment gig full-time ever since then wow it's quite a journey and so about coming up to the 10-year mark of launching your own brand um what made you initially realize that, okay, I want to launch my own brand? I know it's somewhat common with winemakers where you're working somewhere and maybe you, you get access to some fruit or you're able to do, um, you know, a couple of barrels. But what was the, you know, the impetus or the reason why you, uh, you really decided, okay, I want to, I want to do, be able to do my own brand alongside doing your day job? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're you're totally right. We all talk about it, you know. Oh, I'm gonna start a wine brand, and I was in that that camp, um, you know, from the time um, that I was in in Davis, and um, I was, you know, it was always this idea, but I wasn't actually going to start my own project um, back back then when I did in 2009. It was something that I was thinking would be another five years out or so, um, it was just bouncing around in my head, you know, as a, as an idea, wouldn't that be great to make my, my own wine at some point, but I was really enjoying how much I was learning and progressing. Uh, you know, I started as a, as a, as a lab tech and then an ologist and then assistant winemaker. So, you know, lots of my job was very satisfying. I was learning a lot and learning a lot about vineyards and such. And so I wasn't I wasn't like, oh, I have to just do my own thing. It was just going to happen at some point. And it was actually a vineyard that threw me um, through the cart before the horse, if you will. Um, 
I am good friends with um, Anthony Filiberte, who who uh, at the time was living and working up at Cerise Vineyard. He's the owner of of Ant Hill Farms, one of the one of the partners, and. Um, he called me up in 2009 and said, hey, I can get you a little spot in Cerise Vineyard. And I was like, I absolutely can't do that right now. Like, that's awesome. But actually, you know what, maybe Sunday I could be up. You know, how about we, you know, let me actually get in the car. It was one of those like, um, yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's, you know, drove up there and walked around in the vineyard. And I thought, this is exactly the kind of phenom I want to work with. This is exactly what I want to do. These opportunities don't come around very often. So I totally talked myself into it in a matter of no time at all. And, um, and that was it. The first, you know, vintage of Onward was, was happening and it, it was in, you know, picked and made and in the barrel and, and fermenting away. And I still didn't have business plan or a brand name or, you know, any, any of that figure it out yet. And, um, that, that, uh, that stuff was, was happening and I was so busy with, with work. And, um, then I had a, a my, uh, another baby and I was like, I don't even have a brand name for this. And, and it was, it was one of those things where it was small in the beginning. I was 150 cases and it was something that I was so excited about, but I hadn't figured it out as a actual, you know, full-time gig by any means in the beginning. Um, but it, it, um, it, it come, it becomes really consuming really quickly. And I was so excited about, um, getting the opportunity to, to really like work with wine in a way that, um, that I had envisioned as, as something I really wanted to do. The wines I was making in Napa were more bold and bigger in style than um, necessarily my, you know, heartstring wines. And I was really interested in cool climate sites and lower alcohol expression and farming and all of these things. And so I, I got really excited um, about being able to, to do these things and the program immediately onward, you know, it just started to grow right away. By the second vintage 2010, I added the Hawkeye Ranch Vineyard site. And with that, a second Pinot and then a rosé of Pinot. And before, you know, before I knew it, I had a, a real wine program that I was developing. And um, it was a big decision to leave the day job because that's, <laughs> you don't make much in, in the way of money is especially in the beginning with a wine brand, because you're putting so much into making wine before you're, you're selling anything. You know, you, you, especially at that point, I was making predominantly just, um, Pinots that barrel aged for, um, you know, two years in barrel, 18 months to two years and then bottle age. And so you're, you're, you're stacking up the years and you're not actually selling anything yet, you know? So the decision to leave the day job made me get that real business, um, side of it flushed out where how, you know, how can I, how can I make this a fully viable thing? And that was a lot driven by, um, by my family dynamic actually with, um, trying to do, um, the, the hours and such of a, a re, you know, regular big winery job with how much you're on the crush pad and, and year, the, just the travel and, and everything. And I had little tiny kids and, um, 
was pulled in a lot of directions. And I had this mythical idea that I would have more time if I was, uh, if I was self-employed. I laugh now because, of course, I work uh, far more um, now as a self-employed business owner than I ever did when I, when I had my day job. I, I miss those days. But it did give me more flexibility in my schedule. So that was huge as a, you know, a mom with little kids and, and just needing to try to try to fill that role and, you know, be there when they were sick or pick the, or go to their play in the middle of the afternoon. Like who does that? You know, it's like, Hey, we're working. Um, but to do that kind of thing and then just push my workload to different hours of the day and night, I, it was a, it was a decision to, to sort of restructure my, my life and my career and to go full into this, um, this um, self-employment thing. But in order to do that, I had to, to also evolve the, what I was doing with Onward. So that's when I really branched out. I added the, the Melvasia program where I was doing sparkling Petia Naturals and I was doing added, you know, made Rosé a real serious part of my program. And those types of decisions were made um, really to become a more sustainable business. And we talk a lot about sustainability in, in, in the wine industry. And we're, you know, we're often thinking about the vineyard and, and of course I'm all for that. I mean, everything that I, that I work with and, and, and my grower partners are all sustainably farmed fruit, but there's this other part of sustainability that's really important when you're, um, well, I think any size of business, but, um, where you can actually be viable, you know? And so in order to be a viable wine brand, I needed to have things that were sold, um, you know, more, more quickly. So ready more quickly so I could get those, those wines into market and, and, um, start selling those in order to, to, to continue with the red programs that take longer and multiple vintages are stacked up. So it, it shifted from a, you know, a really exciting sort of passion project, which it still is that today, but also evolved into, a more complex um, business model over the when when I when I left my day job, it it became a little bit more serious, if you will. Yeah, and talk about did you have any ideas in mind for the type of wines that you wanted to make as far as uh, varietal and also style? Obviously, you mentioned. Uh, Pino and Ant Hill Farms and kind of the connection there. And you've you've worked with so many different uh, varietals and um, all different types of wines and pet nuts, like you mentioned, I want to get into t- as well. I was doing some research and there's a great website called Prince of Pino. Uh, pretty old website, but I think he's still publishing and they, they rank pretty highly in Google. So if people are sometimes might come across it when they're searching something. And I was reading, um, you're, they have a little profile on you there and you were talking about Steve Mathiason who inspired you. Um, and the, another question was, what Pinot are you ma- drinking right now that was made by someone else? And it was uh, Jamie Kutch. So I don't know if those are still uh, like applicable now, but I'd love to hear about um, yeah, varietals, you know, the type of style you wanted to make and then just kind of influences along the way that kind of tie in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, for sure. Pinot was a, he is a huge, uh, heartstring of, of mine. I love Pinot. I love to drink Pinot. I love how 
delicate and finicky it is. It's one of those those wines that teaches you that you can't you can't wrestle it into doing something. You have to listen. And for me, as a winemaker, that that is that has been a really um, a key part about how I try to make all of my wines. And I I I I make a more delicate style, I guess, of Pinot Noir. So you know, I wouldn't say it's maybe more Burgundian, it's, you know, lighter, more floral and such. And when I was working here in the, in Napa Valley, I was making a bigger, bolder style. And, and those, um, what I learned here in the Valley that I varietal or not, what I wanted to do in onward was more expression of terroir. Now, of course, Napa Valley is one of the most terroir, famous terroirs in the whole wide world. So I don't mean that there's not terroir here there is and it's amazing but what I mean is when you are working in a different vineyard site hilltop valley floor mountain fruit close to the ocean whatnot of course every different site has a different feel and a different expression in the in the vineyard and uh, therefore in the wine but what I noticed a lot here um back in my early days is that when you when you ripen fruit more so when you're working with something that is that sort of bolder um, style, you tend to end up with a lot of like overwhelming varietal characteristic and the nuance of place shows up less to me, for me. And this is all personal. Where I mean, taste, winemaking, smells, all of these things are so personal that everything I say, I always try to covet it with like, for, for my for, for me, for how I feel. Um, but my feeling on, on wines is that once you get into a riper style, you end up with that as being the dominant expression more so than the particular part of the, you know, the soil, the land, where it was, where it was grown. So I was really interested in working with things where I felt they were picked with an earlier picking date or, uh, you know, um, lighter, you get a lighter expression and you get a little bit more of a sense of place. So with Onward, um, that was a really key part of the, the wines from the beginning. And that's why I chose Pinot Noir because I feel Pinot Noir is even more so expressive of sight than some other great varietals. So it really tends to be influenced by its by its um, environment. And that, that's why there's, you know, Pinot Noir clones rapidly. Um, it, it can change within the life of on vine and you can, you know, you'll get um, actual genetic evolution inside of the life of Pinot and you can see different expressions without even, you know, going to a, as a graft or a new, um, a new planting. So it's evolving all the time and it's really sensitive to its environment as a plant, as a great plant, as well as, a, as how it is in the cellar. So it's just, to me, it's like you play the wrong music while your Pinot's fermenting and just forget it. It's all over. Like it's yeah. that picky, you know, but, but inside of that, if you don't look at it as being picky you you see it has this capability of being really sensitive to its environment and therefore has this ability to express such unique beauty and that was a huge part of why I wanted to work with Pinot in a cooler climate site in the beginning 
and then the, the evolution that I was just talking about, about Onward, where I realized I had to branch out and not only do these wines that I was, you know, picking on the earlier side um, to express terroir and therefore needing that to cellar them longer to give them time to, to soften tannins and mellow and barrel. Um, if I wanted to do that style of winemaking, I needed to branch out and also include other varietals that like Carignan and Zinfandel that are uh, varietals that are really um, friendly and easy to express. Um, you can pick them earlier. They still have soft tannins. They're so generous with fruit. So I added other things over time based on um, a combination of, of just what was um, what was sort of needed to, I feel, have, have a portfolio that had amount, like a good amount of depth in it, as well as what I sort of what I ran into. You know, it was all word of mouth. It was this grower introduced you to this, and then you, they have this amazing Pinot planted, and right over here are eighty plus year old organically farmed carignan and i'm standing there going oh yeah yeah i want to make that too and then you look over here you know and there's something else and so it just was this natural beautiful um evolution that at, at over within you know four years all of a sudden i had a lot more going on in in the portfolio because I had found these beautiful things to work with and wonderful people to work with. And you know, one of my main growing partners um, still today is the, the Johnson family. And they're the owners of Hawkeye Ranch. I work with them for um, Carignan and Pinot. And I do my Pinot Noir Petillon Naturel from them and my, my Pinot Noir Rosé. Um, Zinfandel, I mean, they're, they're a big part of my portfolio. And I've been working with them as a grower partner since 2010, and they're just amazing people. And working with them is, is such a joy. And they they farm so incredibly well, but they're also they're just such thoughtful people all the way around. That um, it, it it's amazing to have a grower partner like that. And they're up in in um, in Redwood Valley, which is Mendocino. Uh, so that also influenced the portfolio. You know, if they had been growing um, something else, I mean, I'm so interested in so many grape varietals and you name it. I want to, I'm like, oh, I want to make that. I want to make that. Like I'm terrible, like a kid in a candy store. So if they had, you name it, Marvedra, I would be making Marvedra right now. You know, it's um, for me, the harder thing is not, it's just saying no to something versus saying yes. If I, if I had an unlimited budget, I would make just everything. But I, you know, I have to be, I have to like literally tie my hands behind my back and go, no, you've got enough going on, like not this year. And, you know, and, and, um, and make myself uh, slow down because otherwise um, making wine is, is just so much fun. And then there's the whole running the business, doing the books, doing the compliance, selling it, you know, that whole part. So I have, that keeps me in check. Yeah, no, it, that makes a lot of sense. And your passion really comes through there. I'd love to hear about how you think about farming and you, you touched on that a little bit. And then we can you can kind of lead into cellar management, use of oak. And again, you touched on that a little bit, too. But I'd love to cover those two points and then we can get into the wines. Absolutely. So um, oh, and by the way, Steve Mathiasen is amazing. I love him. And uh, Jamie Koch, too. We shared, a, we were in the same facility for um, 
for several years over in Sonoma. And um, I, I am now in a different facility down, down the street, but working with him was always a joy. And I have found so many wonderful people to work alongside um, Angela from A Tribute to Grace. Her and I have worked together and had a project together in the past. And there's just so many awesome um, small producers. Um, it, it, it's amazing. So I'm really inspired by, uh, by what's going on in California. You know, it was bigger in, in corporate. It's still big in corporate in so many ways. But somehow a lot of us small guys have forged a path inside of, um, you know, using shared facilities, a custom crush, or, or, you know, like I have an AP, a fully licensed winery inside of a, of a, a book, a someone else's winery, you know, and those type of opportunities have allowed us to carve out little footprints here. And, um, it, it's, I think it's really exciting actually what's going on in the, in the California wine scene right now. Um, so that is, it's a joy to be a part of it, just to go back to the previous question. And then in regards to farming, I mean, I, and winemaking too, I'm a less is more kind of, uh, kind of person overall. Um, meaning don't do it unless you absolutely have to do it. And if you have to do it, then there's a reason and the reason is valid, you know, and it's important to listen to that as well. With farming, I, um, I work with sustainably farmed vineyards as a, like, um, an important, um, category inside of that. Then you, you know, then I work with also organically farmed and, and such dry farming is really, um, I think it's a really important part of viticulture where and when we can do it. So that depends somewhat on the soil, the environment, the rootstock that is planted, um, how, you know, where the water table is and whatnot. It's not, you can't just snap your fingers and say, hey, it has to be dry farmed or, or I'm not going to work with it. But inside of, um, if, a, if, a, if a vineyard was irrigated, but there's, there's water available and you can wean a vineyard off of, of water by changing your irrigation program and, and, you know, going to longer, deeper irrigations, which if you're going to irrigate is, is definitely a more environmentally conscious way to irrigate too, as opposed to just surface irrigating, which it ends up in a lot of evaporation. And, and that's just, you know, if we can prevent waste anywhere along the way that, especially with water, you know, we <laughs> we're in yet another year of drought, you know, um, and it's, it's, it's uh, really, real and it doesn't just affect viticulture it affects um all of our crops and our our, we're very much an agricultural state here in california and we we need to think about things like water use you know all all the time so those things are definitely important to me and 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 working with someone like the johnson's at hawkeye ranch i mean they are just they are just farming impeccably and i i feel i couldn't be luckier and you know they've been doing dry farm a lot of their vineyards were planted dry i mean they're back in the day we didn't irrigate you know um vineyards have amazing ability to to grow deep root systems and find water and and a lot of uh, younger newer plantings or or per- potentially, you know, we put vineyards in places that, that maybe we shouldn't. And then they need, they need the help of water. Um, but, but they were doing dry planting back when that was what it was. And then those, those vineyards are still dry farm today. And then some of the vineyards that were younger, um, by younger, I still mean old comparatively to stuff, you know, 50 years old, 
um, they were run, they have irrigation run through them, and now they've gone back to dry farming. And they have um, the Hawkeye Ranch site, for example. It has a, a really great water table. It's getting tougher and tougher with these <laughs> with these continual drought years. But the the vineyards are so used to finding their own water that um, that they're able to be healthy and um, produce a really great crop inside of not having um, accessible water. And if a vineyard is completely reliant on water, you know, when we get into a serious shortage, it is, um, it's not unheard of for vineyards to have to stop irrigating and then you have a collapse on your hands. And so I think it's, it's an important thing for, for us as an industry to be looking at is dry farming. So I, I'm a big proponent of that, but I'm always of the opinion, I don't own the land and I'm not a grower. So I work with growers and I defer to, to them. It's their lifeline. And my lifeline is, is, you know, being able to get a beautiful, impeccably farmed fruit that I can, you know, then hopefully delicately and, and carefully make into, into wine and honor what they have done in the vineyard. Um, so picking your growing partners is really important and who, and I do long-term contracts with every, with everyone I work with. And I try to find people that have, um, you know, like-minded kind of goals as me so that you're, you're not trying to um, always in conflict, you know, I, I would rather encourage like this healthy, um, way of farming and be encouraged by my growers. I'm so inspired by, by these amazing, um, farmers that, you know, I feel like I get more out of it than, than them. I just, I just feel lucky to be a part of it. Uh, so sustainably farmed fruit organically, um, when at all possible, a lot of my, my, you know, my, uh, over the years, um, a lot of my growers have farmed organically, but not been certified organic. And that's something that, um, I really think, you know, it's worth touching on because small farmers are, um, they're like me, they're understaffed and underfunded and they're working all the time. And a lot of them are focused on farming and less so, um, on paperwork. And, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy, Oh gosh, I can't say that word. You know the word I mean. Bureaucracy. There we go. When you get into these certifications, and so sometimes it is just too cumbersome and it's expensive and growers are, they shy away from it because it's not their area and yet they're farming organically anyways. So I always say, know your grower, know your producer. And, and I am all about small because I think that when you can talk to the person that made the wine or the person that that um, that is actually out there in the vineyard, then you get the straight goods and you know what is is um, going on. And if anything needs to be addressed, then you talk about it and you figure out what's the best way to to address it. So that is my kind of core philosophy: is just um, working with people that you know. And that's why I don't um, I don't work with corporate um, vineyards. I I'm all for the family farm and the, and the small grower and I'm small and, you know, I, I, and my distributors are small too. There's this amazing, you know, it used to be all the big guys in the, in the sales world and it was the Southern wine and spirits, the big, huge distributors, and they work with the big wineries and, and, um, there's this beautiful undercurrent of amazing small distributors as well now. And they, um, they care what the little guys are, are doing. So it's been a really amazing growth, I think, in the wine industry here in, um, in the U.S. And it's created a lot of, of excitement for, I think, um, you know, variety in the wine industry. Because when you're small, 
you're trying to figure out how can you do something that's, you know, a little bit different than what everyone else is doing. And you're not relying on, you know, a big marketing budget and whatnot to become, um, known. It's more word of mouth and unique and that it creates an incredible amount of diversity. So I think that, um, the small producers being recognized is a, is a hugely because of small distributors that were they had to really forge inroads with the amount of crazy old rules there are and the these you know big corporate distributors just owned everything you know and it's still that way in a lot of states but luckily um, a lot of um, really cool markets Massachusetts I work with Olmsted Wines and they're just they have just been pounding the pavement for, I've been with them since 2012 and, and people like that. I mean, Oscar who owns it, he was a one man band forever. And just like without his passion, there's a lot of us that wouldn't have had a way to sell in that area. So I think that the, the opportunities for people, the end consumer to find really cool, interesting wines that might be, you know, different than what's on the grocery store shelf or what's in the larger restaurant um, is really attributed a lot to, 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 to that, to the little guys sticking together. So that's, um, that's kind of the full circle of where I think this industry is um, changed and evolved in the decade that I have been self-employed and I've been 20 years um, in the wine industry from my first harvest till, till now. And just the changes have been, have been really awesome in that time. Yeah, congratulations on 20 years. That's a big milestone. And as you mentioned, now now more than ever, it's important that people support independent producers and the quality that's out there and the selection, as you said, the choice, it's never been a better time. Um, so it's, it's a really exciting time for, for wine drinkers and also for entrepreneurs like yourself. Let's get into the wines and then we can talk about how people can get access and be able to buy the wines. We're going to link your website here in the show notes as well, um, onwardwines.com, and people can uh, you know go check that out and, and go buy some wine. Let's first start out with the rosé and then we can move to the, I want to hear about the Pinot and the Carignan and, and then we can touch on the Pet Nats as well, which I know is a, is a whole topic onto its own, but the rosé to start with. Awesome. Um, th- thank you. And yes, so I, I've been making the Onward um, Rosé of Pinot Noir since 2010. It is what I call, or what is known in the industry, we call them like a designated rosé program or whole cluster rosé, or some people go as far as to say true rosé. Basically, all of that means it is rosé and only rosé. So I do make Pinot Noir in the red expression and rosé out of the same vineyard, but I don't pick them on the same day. So they're not, they don't come in as one. They come in as two separate things from the beginning. And with that, why I do it that way or why I feel it's important, the whole cluster rosé, I pick it at a different time than I do when I than I pick for Pinot, for red. So what I'm looking for in the vineyard is higher acid. I don't need to wait for tannins to soften as much as I, you do for a red pick. The sugar, you know, lower alcohol, higher acid, more vibrant fruit expression. So I pick my rosé, I pick out early 
It depends on the vintage. Usually it's, you know, a couple of weeks earlier. Um, vintages like this one, I mean, we are all, everything is starting to stack up on top of each other already. So it may be less time in between um, is my gut feeling at this point, but I don't, I don't know yet. So the, the rosé is, the Pinot is picked for rosé. I bring it in and then I do, uh, I foot tread it. And there's, um, so what that means is I lay down my bins. So they're half ton picking bins. I throw them in the cold room in the cellar and then I foot tread them. So I literally run around in the grapes and, and break up the first couple inches of fruit just to create a juicing effect. And, um, also because it's just so much fun to, you know, run around in bins full of grapes that if you have the opportunity, why wouldn't you do it? It's, you know, part of my thinking, but, um, I do it mostly because I'm working out of a shared facility and we have to fit not just my stuff through the press in a day, but other, other clients have um, one that they're pressing and everyone's got to get things done. So in order to not hog the press and I want to be on skins with that wine, usually, again, it depends on the vintage. It depends on how things are tasting, but it's usually on skins like five to eight hours. So, in order to get extraction and the tastes and flavor that I'm looking for, I need that skin contact time. And if I were in the press that entire time, it would, um, it's just not feasibly possible. So I start that skin contact by uh, foot trading in bin and juicing. And as soon as those, that juice is leaching, you know, from the berries themselves, you start to get extraction. And then I throw it in the press when I've had three, four, five hours, you know, depending on the time and if, if someone is finishing in the press or whatnot. And I go in the press and I will then squish the berries the rest of the way and get a full skin contact at that point. And then just taste and taste throughout until I get exactly the flavors that I'm looking for and then finish the press cycle. After that, the juice, um, it goes into a stainless fermenter. It's fermented, it's cold, cold, soaked, not soaked, cold, um, stabilized for the first couple of days just to settle out. And then I rack it really clean off of the heavy lees and just let it start to ferment in, in, um, a, a new tank. Once it gets going, it goes down to old, old neutral oak barrels. So they're oak, but they're not oak with any oak, um, essence they're just an amazing fermentation tank at that point little small individual ferments i have large barrels though punchins like a double size barrel and then i have some smaller barrels that are the pinot program and it, it goes in those and ferments the rest of the way and then it just um it, i don't do any inoculation so i don't add any yeast or i'm a i'm a low low uh intervention winemaker is maybe the word so if you know my goal is to have um, the, the vine, the fruit in balance in the vineyard, have that natural acid, pick it early, have the flavors I want. And then, um, I, um, I wait for the fermentation to kick off naturally. The Pinot Rosé also often goes through a, a secondary ferment, a malolactic fermentation that's native as well. So if it goes, it goes, if it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I'm not pitching it or inoculating it and I'm not attached to it having to have that fermentation, that secondary fermentation or not. Um, and after that, it just, uh, it just, I do a lot of lees stirring. So I love mouthfeel on this rosé. It's, it's, 
I, I call her a serious rosé. So it's a rosé that is got enough texture and mouthfeel um, that it can easily stand up with like a full on meal. It's not just a summer sipper and it is absolutely delicious on a patio in, in, in the sun and you don't need to have food with it, but you can certainly take it at all the way, you know, even in the winter, you know, a serious, uh, you know, a, a big meal and it has enough um, texture and palate weight to, um, to, to work in that capacity, which I love. So also has a really nice, like a herbal quality to it and a nice floral minerality. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty layered and, and um, the goal is she's complex and, and um, has a lot of, a lot going on. Um, so that's the rosé. And then I can go um, straight into the pinots if you, if you yeah, want to, do you have questions? Per- no, that would be perfect. Yeah. Okay. okay, great. So the, the Pinot Noir from the same vineyard, um, I also picked that early comparatively to, you know, maybe what would be classic California Pinot. Up in Redwood Valley, it is a later ripening season. So usually bud break is later up there. It's farther north. Um, the vines are old. They're probably, probably 60 years old at this point, and their Martini clone. Martini clone is um, an old suitcase clone, and it has less tannin and less color than the more commonly planted um, Dijon clones that are really readily planted here in Napa, Car- you know, Carneros, Russian River, and so on. So the Martini clone is, by, by clonal selection alone, it is more delicate and lighter in color, more floral, and then being grown in that in the northern more you know cooler with the it has like breeze from the coast and such that helps preserve that cooler climate expression in the growing region as well so in the in the cellar I try to really honor that and how and how I make it so picking it on the earlier side I do about 30 percent whole cluster um I say about because I'm not a real measurer of things. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll pick um, the, the, a few bins and throw those in to uh, the bottom of the fermenter. And that becomes my whole cl- cluster portion. And then I'll do destem fruit on top. I love whole cluster of Pinot. And if I was picking the fruit riper and I had, you know, really ripe stems, I would increase that whole cluster amount. But because I'm picking pretty early, the stems are still in the on the you know lighter ripeness stage so stems have tannins and stems have green aromatics when they're young they ripen along with the berries when you're when you're growing so i tend to balance my whole cluster portion by taking into consideration how ripe the stems are and i'm usually picking early so the stems are are still where if i did 100% whole cluster it would it would end up with a very um, dominant stemmy expression, which I don't want. I want that fruit expression and that delicacy of the vineyard to show through. So I try to manage that portion based on stem ripeness. And then I do foot tread um, on my Pinot uh, during cold soak, and then it starts to ferment. I continue to tread it. A reason I foot tread as opposed to um, doing a, a, a pump overs or such is I'm trying to preserve those whole clusters throughout the duration of the fermentation. And the reason for that is if when I do that, then the berries basically ferment inside themselves and you get a mini carbonic fermentation happening inside of your regular fermentation. So you get these additional layered flavors and such that come from the whole cluster fermentation 
while you're getting, um, you know, the, the heat and uh, whatnot from your um, destemmed fruit. So kind of both things working together. And, um, and after that, it's pressed. Um, it goes down to barrel. I do um, usually use a little um, bit of new oak in my Pinot program. It's the only place I use new oak, and I only use a small amount of very, very lightly toasted, low-temperature oak. I don't like a lot of oak aroma on my wines because I'm picking earlier and going for delicate kind of expression and vineyard site terroir. I don't want to overpower that with... Um, with oak, but oak and oak and, and ageability are really important. And the pinots do stay in barrel longer and in bottle before they are released. So I like to have a little bit more of that depth and tan and complexity that you get from um, new barrels. So I do include a little new barrel in the Pinot program. And it's depending on, it's all depending on taste for me. The Pinot's in barrel usually um, two years, sometimes 18 months, sometimes longer than two years. But um, on average, it's, it's, you know, 18 months to two years in barrel. And after that um, goes the bottle. And I do, um, I often do a, a year to two year bottle age on, on the Pinot as well. So current vintage on the Pinot is 2016. And um, that is what drove me to make all these other wines so that I can still continue to honor that longer aging program on my Pinot, but uh, that I have other delicious wines to sell that I can bring to market sooner. Um, the Carignan and the Zin, although they're, you know, they're red like the Pinot, they, um, the way that I make them, there's a lot of fruit forwardness and neither of those varietals have really aggressive tannins. So um, both of the Zin and the Pinot are made in such a way that I can um, pick them still really early off vine, so lower ripeness, lower alcohol, but then have them usually in barrel. Um, the regular onward Kenmars and Fendel and the Hawkeye Ranch Carignan are usually in barrel for 11, 12 months and then bottled. So a lot shorter barrel aging program, all neutral, all neutral oak in both of those programs. The, um, the, Ken Marzin is 50% whole cluster and uh, the same way as the Pinot. So whole clusters on the bottom, destemmed fruit on top. Uh, that's Redwood Valley fruit as well. So that's um, up in um, Mendocino. And then the Carignan, which is from Hawkeye Ranch as well. And those are 85-year-old vines, organically farmed and certified, actually, in the case of the, of the Carignan. Um, that is less whole cluster. Usually I do only 12 or so, maybe 15, 20% whole cluster. And often that is um, because I was going into a, um, a tank where I can't do the foot treading. I can only take up so many open top fermenters in the shared facility. There's, a, there's only so many to go around. So I focus on my Pinot and my Zin in those open top tanks where I do the foot treading. And then the Carignan, which is just the most like easy going grape. It's so full of delicious flavor and fruit and, and but it maintains acid on vine for a long time. So you can get 
beautiful acid with ripe fruit characteristics. And I get so much out of it that I don't, uh, I don't feel compelled to need that and uh, as much whole cluster there and can do, um, do that uh, in a regular fermenter and do a bunch, bunch of uh, like pump overs on that one and just get amazing amount of fruit and um, complexity and carignan is so full of color. Um, it's a, it's a, it's really generous as a grape uh, and I feel it makes an amazing wine in the world. You know, Carignan is very heavily grown, um, lots of Carignan vineyards in, in Europe and such, but here in California, we have some of the oldest, probably the oldest Carignan vines. I mean, maybe not the oldest, but some of the oldest Carignan vines in the world. And we were planting Carignan from the beginning, Carignan, Zinfandel, Morvedra were, kind of the early California grapes as far as reds go. And it's just an extremely um, interesting grape when it gets in that older vine age where the, the, when it's young, it tends to overcrop. It's very generous in that realm too, where it gives you bigger clusters, bigger berries. You can make lots of wine out of it, but they're not as unique. When you get more time on vine, your cluster size gets smaller you have smaller berries and you get more intensity in the wine. And that's what um, that's what we're seeing in California, which is why you see more single vineyard carignans coming out every year of these, you know, these small producers like myself that are like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, it's such an, it's such an amazing grape with that vine age on it, which is very unique to, to California. And we're, we're lucky um, in that domain. So I would say if people aren't familiar with carignan, as a single vineyard expression or a single varietal expression, they very likely are are drinking it in in a blended expression. So a lot of blends include Carignan, but um, but now you're seeing more and more individual expression, which is I think well deserved and um, and um, lucky for us on the consumer side because it's delicious. Yeah, and I, that's I, it, I, I think. Yeah. Oh, pet net. Well, we're getting to get to that. Yeah, no, that, that was great. I love, I was just going to say, I love Carignan in a single expression. It sounds great. People are definitely going to want to check that one out. I wanted to get to the uh, pet nap, but first I'd love to just hear a little bit about the art label series um, and kind of the, what went into that and the, the labels here I'm looking at on the website are so cool. Yes. Um, it's very exciting. It's the newest addition to my world. And um, thanks for thanks for asking. So as is most things with me, they percolate around in my head for a while. And I think, oh, I'm going to do this at some point. And then the opportunity just presents itself and, it, and, and it's full steam ahead. So the, um, to, to back up, the labels themselves, my onward label is, um, is my or you know, also, I guess, in theory, an art label, because my mom is an artist and my mom is the one who did the artwork for the Onward label. So she did the boat drawing and the whole thing. And that was because I was, you know, I was actually trying to work with a, um, a label designer and explaining, you know, what my concept was with this, and this is years and years back now. And the Onward label is um, is, la is named after this little boat called Onward. And that little boat was uh, actually how I went to school in 
um, when I was in grade school, my brothers and sisters and I rode a boat to school from one island to another island back where I grew up in northern British Columbia, Canada. And the name of the boat was Onward. And when I started Onward, I didn't know what I was going to call it. And it was this aha moment where I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to call it Onward because so much of everything that I do, my life choices, um, I really feel are... Uh, they stem from how I was raised and this, um, you, you know, I am driven to try to make wine to all about honoring, honoring the vineyard. And I, I pay a lot of attention to like what's going on in the weather and the environment and all of that, I think is because I was literally thrown in a boat and, you know, rode to school as a, as a young, a young kid. And it, if you, you had to pay attention and be observant about, you know, what was going on in your, in your environment and around you. So that onward drawing was um, done by my mom, who does usually big, like gorgeous paintings. And I, she had to really scale it way back to, to make the, the boat drawing. And on the boat itself, you underneath it says like Hawkeye Ranch, Redwood Valley. So on, a, on an actual boat, you put your port of origin on the stern where the boat is from. And with Onward's whole vineyard site, um, obsession of terroir and grower and who's farming those grapes, what I put on the back of the boat is, is exactly that. It is where these grapes are from. And then as a winemaker, my goal is just to not, um, just to honor that, that expression vintage over vintage and and you know what what did we get out of the vineyard this year and where are these grapes from so that's the onward label and I, I um you know obviously over the years you either you either overthink it in the beginning which I think I did my first um onward bottles went wine went to bottle in shiners because I still didn't have the label the way the way that I I envisioned it and we worked on it until it you know until we got it there and I've always been really really happy with it for what the story is that I'm trying to tell I I always feel like wine labels you know, obviously we judge a book by its cover, whether we're supposed to or not. And we judge a wine by its label. And sometimes I'll love a label, but then I try the wine and I'm like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. Even though I love the wine too, it might, it doesn't feel like it matches or something like that. Or you feel like disappointed or you're overly excited. You're like, oh, this label's kind of not that great, but this wine's amazing. So I feel like it's, it's, it's kind of, important to try to get it where you're, you're, you feel as the, as the producer or whatever, you feel like your label is, is in line with, you know, what you're, what's inside the bottle. So I've always been really happy with how it all worked out in the end. And I love the word onward more and more every year. Um, you know, it was originally just the name of the boat, but over these last years with, the things we've gone through with the pandemic and my kids, my four kids being at home trying to like have them do Zoom school whilst trying to run a business and, you know, wildfires year over year. And it just keeps getting crazier. And I feel like there's days where I'm like, what am I doing? And that word onward keeps me like moving in a forward momentum. So it's been a it's become my like real personal mantra on top of it. And I, I feel like I've fallen into the brand name in this like wholehearted way. So instead of, you know, um, in, uh, coming up with another brand, I wanted to have a place inside the Onward portfolio where I could do things that weren't necessarily what I do every year, year over year. And, and now what I'm calling my classic label, which is the boat label. So the art label 
is a way for me to express myself inside of onward in something that may be, maybe it's something I only get to work with one year, or maybe it's something that is, you know, I only get the opportunity or the tank space one year. So it may not be, uh, you know, a wine that you see again, or you might see it for three years in a row and then not see it, or maybe other, every other year, but just a little bit more flexibility in there, but with still being with that onward um, name. So that is a part of what was behind it. And then um, the artwork itself is a huge part of why it happened in, in 2000. And 20 as well. So my dear friend, Darawena is the artist behind the art label that you're seeing on the website. Plus I have all, I have two more, um, art label series that I need to get up on the website and launch. I have a sparkling rosé of Carignan in the art label series that is going to be, I promise you viewers and listeners, it will be going to the website let me let me give myself a deadline by the weekend i'll have it up there Great. and the new onward um cans are a um carignan sparkling carignan rosé as well in the and they have an art label on them as well so there's actually three art labels now ha having been made and two of them just have to be launched um by yours truly so i'll get on that but dara and I are incredibly dear friends and inside of all the upheaval of 2020 she also moved away. She was one of the many, uh, you know, California families that um, decided it was it was time to to move to possibly a more sustainable place to live, and they moved to Colorado. Her and her husband and their and their two boys, and her and I had always been talking about doing an art label series together, and we just hadn't gotten to it yet. And I was like, all right, that's it. Like you, you're leaving me, but we're gonna we're gonna like broaden our relationship by doing this art label series we're not letting it pass so we came up with the the nouveau label um as she was um she was you know moving out of state and i'm it, it gave us a something to be um positive about inside of something that was you know kind of sad and hard um which was 2020 in general right sad and hard and i figured we were all everyone was having a tough time and and it, I was trying to find a way to focus on uh, the good things that were, you know, coming inside of the challenges. So the Nouveau wine was just that, and it needed to have a way for it to have a different story. And so the art label series was born inside of kind of all of that change that was going on in 2020. So it is um, a, a new vineyard uh, that is farmed by 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 um, Pete Johnson from the owner of Hawkeye Ranch Vineyard and it's a it's a hundred percent organically farmed and certified as beautiful and I you know I was already making Zinfandel and you know you, you think well what what do I do well it is um an, a completely different style so a hundred percent whole cluster made in a nouveau style so meant to be um, fresh and, and, and quick to market. And it was, it was bottled in November. So only a couple of months in the cellar. And, um, I've always wanted to make a carbonic style wine and just, you know, was on the list, like, like a million other things, but it, it was a combination of getting access to this fruit of wanting to do this art label with Dara and of the blazing wildfires that were encroaching on us in 2020 as if we didn't have enough going on you know with the pandemic we had all this we had we had to seriously make pivoting um picking decisions and stuff because wildfires were popping up everywhere and smoke taint is as a difficult thing to manage and 
I decided I wanted to pick this vineyard before the fires and smoke issue became, you know, a problem. And they were getting closer and smoke was settling in, in um, a little bit farther north. And of course, down here in Napa and over in Sassoon Valley, where I usually pick the Melvacia Bianca, we had, um, uh, we had a big fire in, in that vineyard and area. So it was just as crazy um, reality. So I picked early, but wanted the fruit to still be really juicy Zinfandel full of fruit and decided to do a full carbonic um, fermentation to get those fruit expressions without needing to wait for, for ripeness. So I had acid and I had fruit, but I had a brighter fruit, did it carbonic in a tank, then pressed it early so it wasn't on skins uh, as long and fermented the juice in, in barrel for the rest of the fermentation. And it was like literally, you know, making it up on the spot. Like, like what, what can we do to honor this vineyard um, the best possible and to prevent, you know, a possible issue with smoke by leaving it out in, in the vineyard. You'll notice in 2020, a lot of beautiful wines were made, more rosés in some cases, because again, people had to pick earlier. And, and what are you going to do? You're going to do something different and still not lose your, you know, not lose your crop. So there's a lot of reality in farming, you know, in farming. And, and this year is the same. We have, you know, thankfully we don't have wildfires in the viticulture areas at this moment, but we're all on edge, of course, and we have a massive drought. So things are ripening different. Crop yields are way down. And you know, there's this, there's this fair amount of heavy dose of reality when it comes to, to um, wine, because it is, it's farming really in the end of the day, it's, um, it's a crop and it's farming and the environment is, is a heavy, um, is, it's the main influencer, of course, and we can do everything we can to, to try to farm the best inside of difficult challenges, but we've got to, we've got to um, be willing to adjust our practices and, and our styles and what we're doing based on what we're up against. So the Nouveau um, was this beautiful gift that came out of a, of a challenging situation. And it was just clear to me that it was the perfect time to launch the Art Label series and, and showcase um, the joy that was possible inside of a really hard time. And Dara's artwork is so perfect for that because it's so bright and colorful and you can't you know, you can't stay in a bad mood when you're looking at it. So the whole idea was giving some little bit of joy inside of inside of a hard time. And, and it's been I'm so um, honored to work with her. She's an amazing artist. And it's been great to see the bottles moving around the country and, and then more people getting introduced to her work. And um, it, yeah, so it's been a very fulfilling partnership. And I'm, I'm very excited about it. And there'll be more art labels to come and I've got some um, other things in mind and, and things to showcase and um, whether it be artists or vineyards or wine styles so you know stay tuned for for um, my creative side partnering with amazing other creative people and just you know putting little little bits out there to share with the world so that's that's the idea there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story, and thanks for the, all the background on both the labels. And, um, this Zinfandel is definitely not one to be missed. People should check this one out. Lastly, just kind of wrapping up here on the pet gnats. Um, that was, I think, that was the reason that I actually found you. Where I was searching for a winemaker that specifically did pet gnats, along with maybe some other you know wines as well, and I realized that 
the type of wines you make. I was really interested in that style. So um, I'd love to just hear, it's it's a good, probably a topic for a whole nother show. We could have you on again at a later time even to, to go to go into a whole show about it. But I'd love to hear just briefly, um, you know, what's involved, what people should know, and, and obviously how to uh, get access and, and buy your wines and the type of pet nuts that you make. Awesome. Um, thank you. And you know, it's, it's pet nut is, it's a whole amazing, it's amazing thing. It's amazing conversation. And it's been a huge part of, of, um, the onward program. And of course it wasn't in the program in the beginning. So it really, um, it was an evolve evolution of, for me as a winemaker and it all started, um, with the Melvisia Bianca vineyard in Sassoon Valley that's, um, owned by the, by the Caps and the vineyard is called Capin Ranch. And it is, um, it's not the first vineyard I worked with in Sassoon. I started working with Roger first. Um, and he, uh, was a, a grower there and there's a lot of amazing small growers in, um, in Sassoon. And, not that there isn't in Napa as well, but there's a real farm family farm feeling um, over in Sassoon Valley. And I got to know more and more people over there. And I found this Melvisia Bianca vineyard by um, luck and a connection with other small um, with other small growers. And it was unsold, unspoken for in 2013. So this, you know, attributes sort of highlights how much the industry has changed. I think, you know, in the the exciting varietals that we are now seeing, single vineyard expressions of all sorts of unusual varietals, unusual winemaking styles, um, petit naturels, uh, skin fermented wines, um, you know, fully carbonic, all of this really cool stuff is coming out of vineyards that were already planted. But these vineyards were going into larger blends or kind of, you know, kind of lost inside of, 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 of a bigger program. And now they're getting pulled out and, you know, shown, showcased on their own. So the Melvisia Bianca was, was um, something that wasn't a varietal that people were like searching out in 2013. And I was a little nervous because that was still when, you know, people were like, if they couldn't, you know, pronounce it, they didn't necessarily want to order it type of thing. It was more, you know, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc kind of, um, kind of uh, varietals that people were looking for. But I walked into the vineyard, I put a berry into my mouth and I went, oh my goodness, I have to make this. And right away, it was, it has to be a pet nat. Now, my only real experience with Petit Naturel at that point was tasting um, other expressions and all really small producer um, European expressions. And um they were wines that always captivated me. And I'm like, these are so delicious, but it wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to go make one. You know, I just loved, I loved drinking them and, and, and trying them, enjoying them. But when I tasted the Malvasia, I was, it was literally, there's nothing else I can do, but make this into a Petit Naturel. And that just spurred the whole thing. At that point, there was really very few um, Petit Naturels being produced in um, in California at all, and there was um, it was it was far from the you know the the wide um, depth that you can see now, and it's become a really um, popular style, which is I think because it's so fun and 
and um, easy to drink. It's so cheerful, if you will. But but back then we were we were um, struggling against things like wine needs to be serious and you know to, to be like there was more of that um, kind of mentality that a, a fun playful wine didn't get as much um, street cred as a method champenoise, which and don't, don't get me wrong. I love all kinds of bubbles. I'll drink bubbles in any form. I am a huge bubbles fan, but there was definitely a hierarchy um, of, of, you know, seriousness meant quality. And it, it, it doesn't, you know, you can have an amazing quality wine that is more play, more playful or, um, you know, of an unusual varietal or less expensive or all of that. And we've really opened our hearts to that now more so um, than we, than there was in 2013 when I started. So I had made sparkling wine before in, in my day job. And I, of course, I have a degree in winemaking, so I knew how to do that, but I didn't know how to make Pazzi on Naturel. And it was, I, I picked the vineyard two days after finding it. It was literally just added to my program. I was at a shared facility here in Napa. I asked them if I could make Petzi Natural, and they said, sure, not knowing what they were saying yes to. And they said, what do you need? And I said, I just need cooling. I need a tank I can cool. That's how much I knew. At that point, I knew I needed to be able to, to keep the fermentation cold and to settle it really well. And uh, I figured I'd read the rest, you know, um, that night type of thing, which I did. And um, they gave me this fermenter that was um, outside in Carneros. And it did have cooling, which was great. It didn't have any way to heat the tank. And I didn't, that wasn't even something I was considering. So I wasn't worried about it. I picked the vineyard, um, pressed it, cold settled it, um, racked the juice clean, you know, and and started to, to let the native ferment kick in while trying to figure out how much sugar is it supposed to have when you bottle it. Because the, the main thing with Pétain Natural, as opposed to, method champenoise or, or, or um, other methods of making sparkling wine. It is a bottle fermented sparkling wine like method champenoise, but it's not a secondary fermentation. It is just the continuation of the primary fermentation. So it's one fermentation, nothing added. It, it loosely, Petit Natural it translates to naturally sparkling. And it is the original way that sparkling wine was made. So sparkling wine was, you know, um, initially it was a, a discovery, um, like all things, I mean, alcohol, wine in general, fermentation. These were all more, um, they were, they were, you know, accidental discoveries that turned into a main, you know, a big part of our, our life and bread, you know, everything. So sparkling wine was wine that had gone to bottle while it still had sugar in it. And, and back in the old days, you know, wine was, the, the fermentation would arrest when it got cold out. So it would stop fermenting and they would age in caves down in, in, in the cellars and such. And then there was wines that started to warm up again. And when springtime would come and some, the bottles started blowing up and then, and that led to the discovery of what happens when um, fermentation occurs under pressure and voila, you get these amazingly delicious bubbles that form. So then it was, you know, fine tuned into, well, how much sugar um, in the, in the must, in the fermentation creates uh, an amount of bubble that we can capture without blowing bottles up. And that was the uh, original um, method champenoise, which is 
the same thing as Petit Naturel for the, the most part. So just a fermentation that goes to bottle while it's still fermenting and finishes in bottle. And um, Method Champenoise is what, um, or did I say Method Champenoise? If I did, I mean Method Ancestral. The Method Champenoise was the newer version where we figured out how to make a far more um, reproducible, larger scale, less, um, less, you know, kind of by the seat of our pants method. And so method ancestral was for the most part replaced with method champenoise, where you're taking a fermentation and in a fermentation tank or vat or whatnot, you're letting it finish all the way to dryness. And then you're adding back sugar and live yeast at the day in which you're bottling it, you put it to bottle and it has that secondary fermentation. And that way you can actually add exactly how much sugar you want. You know you're not going to have bottles blowing up. You know you have live yeast and um, that everything is going to go much more smoothly. So you can do a larger size scale and a more, you know, a more reproducible product. And that method became the method and Petian Naturals were still made in some smaller, more rural regions in, in Europe. And they kind of, in the, the more, you know, less production, less fancy equipment, then you need all sorts of things when you're doing a full bone method champenoise that you don't need with a um, method ancestral or, or what I call the Petian Natural. And the reason I went that style was multiple reasons. I love how it tastes. I love the expression. It's also something that I can do all by hand. So I don't need any sparkling wine equipment. So it's a, like a lot of elbow grease and, and some risk, lots of risk. And uh, it has to be a labor of love. And no one is going to make Petit Naturel on a large scale, if they're going to do large scale sparkling, they're going to either do Prosecco style, like a tank fermented, or they're going to do Method Champenoise or something that is logically scalable. But if you don't have the larger equipment or a facility for that and you want to make sparkling, Petit Naturel is a great way to do it. Um, so one fermentation, you move it from tank to, to a bottle while it's still fermenting, which really means um, your fermentation is still has a lot of uh, CO2, a lot of um, bubbles in it from the fermentation that's active. So the way I do that is by hand, by gravity. Um, it doesn't want to go, it, the wine, doesn't want to go through a pump or a bottling line or anything like that because there's so much CO2 that you will just end up foaming everywhere and you'd have completely... You'd have fill heights all over the place and whatnot. So you need the wine to be cold. You 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 gravity fill, and then you put a crown cap on it. And unlike um, unlike you know, champagne or method champenoise, you you don't um, or I feel <laughs> traditionally they were not disgorged. So mine are not disgorged. Now there's a lot in that sentence. If you want to have a sparkling wine that isn't disgorged you have to manage your sediment. And um, what happens if you have a lot of sediment in the bottle, when you open the bottle, it will, it will gush and foam everywhere. And that's why sparkling wine is riddled and disgorged. So the sediment's removed. And then when you open it, you get a little bit of foam, you know, just enough to be exciting and be a celebration, but you, you don't lose your whole bottle of wine all over the floor. If you have a lot of sediment, that is exactly what will happen. And so if you're not disgorging, 
you either have to, you know, accept a fair, a little bit of loss and uh, when you open it, or in, in the case of what I do, you, you want to settle that tank really well, um, while it's still in fermenter. And that means settling it and racking it off sediment multiple times. So I ferment really cold and long and slow and rack it a bunch of times. And when the wine is, um, free of sediment enough that um, that I can safely go to bottle without needing to disgorge it. Um, then then it goes to bottle at the you know at the right sugar level, which is something that you start monitoring really closely. And I often have to get the tank so cold in order to slow the fermentation down and get it to settle out, and then you know rack it again. So it's a real fight with um, against time because you have only so much sugar there and yet you have sediment that you need to fall that needs to fall out of the wine uh, so you can get it clean enough so it's um it's not without stress <laughs> and yeah. it's always like touch and go like is it you know oh my god i'm still too cloudy and yet i'm losing my sugar and you know and then and then of course the the whole like cooling system goes down in the winery and then you like you can't sleep at night so there's all sorts of elements that are added um but the very first vintage to go back to how how and why i do it that way is because I was in that outside tank in this winery in, in Carneros and the wine, I was running it so cold and slow that I basically was like the poor yeast were, you know, barely surviving. And it was, um, it was, you know, in my mind, it was necessary, um, to get that sediment out. But then the fermentation basically you know, almost stopped and it was winter it was January and I still wasn't um, ready to go to bottle. I had too much, too much grape sugar left in this, in the wine that it would have blown the bottles up. And it, it was kind of flatlining. And I was like, Oh no, if I killed the ferment, you know, with natives, you know, you know, you're not walking, talking about a bunch of like added yeast or, or anything here. And what happened is that it was so cold over that, that January back in, I guess it would have been 2014 and because it was 13 vintage that it allowed me to get really, really good settling. So the winery was closed for the holidays and I was just sure I was gonna come back after everyone's been on their, you know, after harvest, Christmas vacation type of thing, that there was gonna be no sugar left in the wine at all. But in fact, it was exactly where it was when um, when, when um, everyone had gone on, on their, um, between Christmas and New Year week off. and. The wine sat like that for a couple of weeks and then I was able to rack it really clean and then it started to warm up and it just started fermenting and, and within I think it was February of that year that it was in the zone and ready to go to bottle. So the first Petit on Natural I ever made had absolutely no gushing and people were like no way like you must have like what did you do how did you you know, how did you get it not to gush and what did you, you you know must have disgorged it and i was like i i didn't disgorge it um but it became really clear to me how important that settling process was so now i mimic my good, good fortune of a cold carneros um winter and i just you know, i do i do um chill those tanks way down and get them to um 
to get nice and nice and clear before um, I lose all my sugar. And then it goes to bottle and then I let it ferment in, in picking bins. So I stack it in um, what, what the same bins I harvest out of and, and the bottles go back in and they age and finish fermenting there. And then I pull them out and label them and they stay with their original crown cap. And for me, with a Petit Naturel, um, a big part of it is the lower bubble. So it has a nice soft bubble expression. And that is because traditionally they were less bubble than a full-blown sparkling wine. So with Method Champenoise, because it's so calculated, you can get exactly the amount of pressure bubbles equal pressure in the bottle that the bottles are rated for before they will explode because you're adding your yeast and your sugar and you you know you know exactly what you've got with petia naturel or method ancestral you were working these original old wines they were going by taste and we didn't have the same equipment that we do now to measure sugar levels so that they were made at a level that was lower in sugar because they were safer to have the lower in sugar and that lower bubble so that you're not in that bottle blowing up window. And so I make mine in that honoring that traditional method. Of course, I could safely go to bottle with a higher sugar level because we can test that now. And a method, uh, a Petit Naturel can, and often they are made at that full, you know, five, six atmospheres, that would be the same amount of bubble as a, um, as a full blown champagne. But I do mine in that classic old method where they have less um, sugar when they go to bottle. Therefore, they have less pressure. And I love them that way because they are in more delicate, soft bubble. And because of that lighter bubble, I also think not disgorging is important because you are um, going to lose um, some bubble when you disgorge. And you're also going to lose aromatics. And I love it when you open them they have this yeasty fermentation um, aromatics that first fill your nose. And then after that, you get into the varietal characteristic and the wine comes through. But it's like the initial smells are kind of what you get in the fermentation being in a winery during during harvest. And I feel it's like a nice way to, to share that with consumers and you get that, that yeasty fermentation. Then you get the varietal characteristics. I love Petit Naturels with interesting varietal characteristics to to um combat that like fermentation esters and go along with it and just add this huge amount of depth and the melvasia is great for that and then i do the rosé of pinot noir i make it the same as you know same way that we've already talked about but it is um from the hawkeye ranch pinot noir whole cluster press rosé I've also done skin fermented melvasia bianca petit natural i do a skin fermented Malvasia still wine and sometimes and I don't do it every year um, but sometimes I take the clearest wine off the top of the skin fermented after I've pressed it let it get really cold and settle out and there's still enough sugar there in that clear wine at the top that I can I can make a small amount of skin fermented Petit Naturel and that I literally siphon it off the top of the the tank and the rest of the tank is too much sediment that it would it would need to be disgorged or it would be a, a gusher. So I just do a small amount depending on when um, you know when it works out. And I've done um, red Petit Naturel as well with Carignan this year. I don't know because it's too soon to say, but I'm like really my gut is um, 
I'd like to try with a with Zinfandel in the red expression. So who knows, that might happen this year if I can pull it off. But um, they're an amazing wine. They're super fun to make. They are challenging in, in a different way. And a lot of people have higher bubble or like higher pressure or they do a scourge them. Um, there's, you know, there's no right or wrong way that the, the name Petia Natural is, isn't like, um, there's, all, there's, there is some guidelines and, and whatnot, but the overall ethos is, um, is about a natural wine. So nothing added. So there's no, you know, there's no, um, additives such as sulfur or acid or sugar or water or whatever. Um, so they're generally, if you're looking for a more natural expression of sparkling wine, choosing a Petit Naturel is a, is a good way to go. A lot of, of, of sort of mass-produced sparkling wine is actually very heavily manipulated. And um, when you add the dosage, which is after they're disgorged, before the when the cap comes off and the cork goes in, at that stage in, in um, regular um champagne making a lot of additives are um, more sulfurs added colors often added anti-foaming so it doesn't foam uh, there's all sorts of things and and so that is like an opportunity for for people to add more stuff and, and with a petit natural the idea is less is more and so for people that are you know in seeking out that kind of of wine it's a good choice for sparkling um but I love them, and um, I've, I've even gone as far as to make one in a can, where I do make wine in can, and I've uh, made a several years where I made the Petia Natural uh, Malvasia, and it's actually fermented in a can, and that was even harder, actually, than fermenting it in a bottle. So um, so I'm not sure if, if that's going to happen this year or not. I'll have to see if my kids stay in school, and, and that all depends on um, this pandemic, and, and we'll see how much... Um, how much breathable, wakeable hours that that I have um, these last few years have been have been incredibly um, difficult that way. You know, just a lot of managing of um, different hats at one time, which is always the case with small producer, but even more so, I think, with the challenges that we've been we've been under. So sometimes we make Petio Natural five ways. Sometimes we make it one or two ways. It all depends on the year. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks so much for the explanation and um, really inter interesting information for people who, uh, you know, there's good information there for people who don't know anything about it. And also for people who are familiar, you went into some really cool details there. So that was great. Faith, this has been a lot of fun. Why don't you tell people how they can interact with you, buy your wine? Again, we, we are going to link the website in the show notes, but tell people how they can interact with you and, and be able to get some wine. Well, thank you for that. So I do have um, a shopping cart on my website and I, um, so it's onwardwines.com and on there, all, you know, the, all the wines are listed. And as, a, as I said, some of the newest, I have a, a brand new Chardonnay, which I can't believe we didn't talk about, but it comes from Hawkeye Ranch from, uh, or not from Hawkeye, but from Pete, it's at his home ranch and it's a low alcohol, high acid, all stainless fermented Chardonnay that I made in 2020 that is not yet on the website, but it will do. I just, just bottled it and it's getting released and I couldn't tell you how excited I am about that. So that'll be on the website as well as the new art label wines and uh, um, I'll, I'll double check if I need to do any vintage updates there, but um, I'm my own IT person and I'm far better at um, 
making wine <laughs> than I am at doing my website updates, but I'll get on there and get it all fresh uh, for everyone. I have a wine uh, wine club. I have a mailing list. With the mailing list, it's no commitment. You just sign up and then you get um, you get a newsletter from me, like, you know, when I write one, which is at the most, you know, twice a year. Every, every I always say, I promise I'm going to communicate more often and, and share what's going on. Um, but there there's no risk of being overwhelmed with emails in your in, in your in basket but you do get to hear about some of the limited edition stuff some of the tiny stuff you know that doesn't actually hit the um the the larger scale market so it's worthwhile to join up to the to the newsletter just to be on that um correspondence from me and then the wine club is um it's six or 12 bottle and you can and you get with that you get um you get some of the smallest production stuff as well in your club selection and you also get um, a, a, a discount on shipping and you get a discount on anything you buy throughout the year. So not just on your club shipment. So it actually ends up to be a really great, uh, a great way to get um, some of the fun stuff and then as well get a, a really good value. So that's available. You can sign up on that online or buy any amount of bottles, one or two or three or, you know, um, whatever you want from the shopping cart. Um at any point now, I can't ship to every state because I'm I'm still you know I'm small and I'm not licensed everywhere. But if there if the website says no to you, um, send me an email, Faith at Onward Wines, and say, hey, I live here. Um, do you have any other options? Because sometimes we can we can figure out ways or neighboring states or um, things like that. So don't uh, don't be discouraged if you happen to be in a in a state that comes up as a difficult one to ship to in the beginning. I'm always adding states and adding, um, you know, new shipping partners and, and so on. So don't ever hesitate to ask there. And then in addition to that, um, you know, I'm all about supporting my um, my sales connections which are my small distributors and my amazing restaurant partners who need all the support they can get after being, what a crazy year they've been to through and then small uh, retailers too. So if you have a neighborhood shop that you like or somewhere that you go, um, you certainly um, ask them about Onward and they may or may not know, they can bring it in or send me, a, send me a note and I can figure out, you know, how to get in touch with them and we can, we can grow it that way too and, and get the wine um, into a place close to you locally. So we, we do it, we come about it from all different ways, but um, I don't have a tasting room and so I don't have a storefront. Um, I do, I do um, host tastings. I can host people at the winery. It's a shared facility. So we have to schedule it and figure it out around, you know, what else is going on there. Um, and I've got a couple of spots I can, I can do that. So also don't ever hesitate to send me a, send me an email and see if we can, um, arrange a tasting. And I almost likely be able to figure that out for, for, um, for people and for groups of people and so on. And, because I don't have a, a tasting room, I do. I so appreciate the support if anyone um, goes to the website and and um, and purchases because it's my only kind of way to directly connect with with people. And as a, a as a small producer, I mean, we are we are wearing too many hats generally at all times, but I'm on Instagram. I, um, I do, you know, I try to communicate there and share. So if you go to um, Instagram and you like that site onward wines and um, you'll get some tidbits from me and it will, again, I'll try to always, um, post more exciting stuff about what's going on in harvest and things like this. And you can follow me there and, and never hesitate to, um, 
to just send me an email at faith at Onward Wines. Or if you ever buy a bottle of Onward Wines, you'll notice my phone number is right on the back of the label. And you can just call me up. We can talk about wine or um, you can ask me whatever I didn't to, uh, um, talk about, about Petit Naturel or anything under the sun. So I, as a one-woman band, I, I try to be really approachable. I'm often um, under, you know, out in the vineyard with no reception or in the back of the cellar. Um, but if I, um, if I get your call, I'd be happy to, to talk with you about anything. So I appreciate this opportunity to get to know more of you. So thank you, Ryan, so much for having me on and, and giving me a a place to, you know, to, to share about Onward and, and what I'm doing. And, um, without without you people without my consumers you know this is i i don't get to keep doing this thing that i love so much so i am super grateful for um for people to try the wines and and get to meet them and um it keeps me able to you know follow my my heart and my passion and 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 call this a real job so i'm forever grateful for that great well thank you so much faith this has been so much fun we're gonna throw the links in there encourage people to buy some wines and maybe even revisit the podcast while you're drinking some of the wines that we talked about. It's always fun. And um, best of luck with uh, the rest of Harvest. Thank you so much. And again, thanks for reaching out to me and um, let me know if there's ever anything else you uh, want to talk about. And I'm just, um, Harvest is going to be amazing. And just everybody, don't be afraid of 2020 wines. There's lots of beautiful stuff that was certainly not um not smoke tainted. So I know some, I get that question a lot that pe- producers were so careful and, and did an amazing job. So we're lucky and there is a drought right now. So the only thing I can say is um, if you have a favorite wine, any, anything you love or like, you know, you're um, we're definitely dealing with some lower production sizes and you know, the Malvasia vineyard was um, over 50% down in yield this year. So our growers need support. Uh, those, those farmers are really, um, it's, it's, a, it's been a hard couple of years for them. And so when you're working with small producers, drinking small producers wines, that goes right back to these growers and they're the lifeline of all of this. So I am just grateful to be able to share um, some of what they do and share it with everyone. So Thank you. Harvest is going to be amazing. It's going to continue to be amazing. I'm bringing in fruit tomorrow again and excited about that. And um, wishing everybody um, continued safety through this crazy time. And we'll get to the other side. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.